Let's read this passage, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. We'll stop at verse uh, 45 because we've already read Mary's song earlier. But let's, um, let's be aware that we're going to divide this passage into two parts. First we have, beginning in verse 39, especially in verse 41, it really gets started. We have Elizabeth's shout, okay? Her spirit-filled shout. And then beginning in verse 46, we have Mary's song. Elizabeth's shout and then Mary's song. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's recap where we have been so far in Luke's narrative. We, this is only our, our fourth time in the Gospel of Luke. And so far, we have uh, got in on, we, we have seen the, the angel Gabriel making two announcements of two baby boys who will both serve God and his people in fulfillment of ancient promise. So far, side by side, that's a rather a comparison, right? The first one is John, whom we will later know as the Baptist. The second is Jesus, who is called the Christ. We're now getting into the contrast between the two. The first, John is called by God to prepare the way. The second, Jesus, is the way. And Luke puts the birth announcement side by side so we can compare and contrast these two figures so that you and I will be certain of the superiority of the worth and the work of the one who is called the Son of God. As Luke has put these two scenes side by side for us, we have also been able to see the, the contrast between the two figures who received these announcements, between John's elderly father and Jesus' young mother. One, again, male, one female, one elderly, one young, one a priest, the other a peasant. But the contrast don't stop there, unfortunately. There's another contrast. And that's between Zechariah's reception of the word from heaven and Mary's. Because Zechariah stumbles in unbelief. He is uncertain. And in contrast, young Mary is deeply certain concerning what she has heard from the angel Gabriel. We saw the sad consequences for Zechariah already a couple of weeks ago. And today we're going to look at the happy consequences for young Mary. 
So far, I have found, when I think about this, I found the responses largely restrained. Okay, we've had a good bit of fear on, in both parties. Both have raised issues, possibly obstacles to what God has promised would be. And of course, we've had the strong resolve of Mary as she has committed herself to the will of God, no matter what it will be. But so far, uh, I still think we find a largely restrained response. And you just have to know that there's got to be more in there than this. These announcements coming from heaven concerning the births of these baby boys who are the fulfillment of ancient promise, I mean... Come on, a, a little bit more here, right? And that really begins to come out in the paragraphs before us today. Yes, of course, there is a lot more to say. And there is a lot that needs to be sung. How does this begin to come out? It begins to come out as God's people. We see it in Elizabeth and Mary getting together. As God's people share together in what God has done for us, that the praises begin. That's when they share the shout and they share the song and whatever restraint was in place before just falls off completely. As they are filled with the Holy Spirit and share in what God has done, the praises begin. And this raises the question for you and for me. If we don't find it in our hearts to sing, to sing over what God has done for you and me through the gospel of his son, what is wrong? Do we not know these things, this gospel of Jesus Christ as our own? How can the saved be silent? How can those who are certain of their salvation in Christ be silent? This is what I want to propose to you today. That when the reality of the gospel sets into your soul by the powerful, present witness of the Holy Spirit of God, the saved and the certain will sing. I'll say it again. When the reality of the gospel really truly sets in by the powerful present witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart, the saved and those who are certain that they are saved will sing. It says in verse 39, after she had heard the announcement and was given this sign, the sign that Elizabeth in, in her elderly years, despite her barrenness, was also going to have a child. Mary hasn't asked for the sign. But once she gets it, she, of course, feels compelled to follow up. And she's going to go. It says in verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste. Doesn't, it means then, it implies she didn't stick around for long. She didn't stay in Nazareth twiddling her thumbs. Quickly. She came to the decision that she would go into the hill country to a town in Judah. That means, the hill country means, she is going south to an area, to an unnamed town, somewhere near 
Jerusalem. She's in the north of Israel. Zechariah and Elizabeth live in the south. There is a good 80 miles distance between them as the crow flies, and she is going to have to make her way through some pretty treacherous country. It's speculation. It's imagination. We all would like Luke to fill us in on a little more detail, but I just was wondering, does she ask permission before she goes? Hey, Mom, I'm going to visit Elizabeth. Uh, what's that, 80 miles? Okay, yeah, no problem, honey. You know, I'll be gone for three months. That's okay. Does somebody go with her, her father, older brothers perhaps? Does she travel south with a contingent from Nazareth going to Jerusalem? We're not told. I'm a pretty curious person, and I'll, uh, you know, give it to Mary when we get there. I'll be asking these kinds of things, along with, of course, a lot of other things as well. But it says, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. It's all Luke tells us, nothing about the journey. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. As I picture it, the sun is to Mary's back. Her silhouette then fills the doorway. And she says, Elizabeth, shalom. Before Elizabeth can look up and identify who is at her door, the baby within her, six-month-old fetal John, not quite viable, gives this otherworldly leap, probably feels like he is doing backflips inside. Of course, Elizabeth has felt plenty of movement and, and kicking before. Nothing. I don't imagine a mother, expectant mother, has felt anything quite like what John made Elizabeth feel in this moment. Says the baby leaped in her womb. John is the one who will prepare the way for the Lord, we know. He has been appointed by God to bear witness to Jesus. And the angel has said to Zechariah, his father, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his womb. Well, we have evidence here that the Holy Spirit was already filling this one. He doesn't become a person when he is delivered from the birth canal, does he? He is already in his fetal state, filled with the Holy Spirit, and giving witness to the identity of this person who is even younger than John, who is not even in what we call the fetal stage, but is still in the embryonic stage. As soon as John hears the mother of his Lord, he signals to Elizabeth, his mother, in the only way that he can. Well, I mean, what can he do? He leaps, and he leaps for joy. And Elizabeth, who is filled with the Holy Spirit herself, gets the signal. She reads it loud. And she reads it clear. And there is no doubt in her mind who Mary has within her. And so this is not time to keep calm. Just she has the same response basically as her son. Her son wasn't able to shout. She is. And that's exactly what she does. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled 
with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Note again, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice very carefully the effects that the Holy Spirit's fullness have on on Mary. Has on Mary. Humility and joy. Deep humility and exuberant joy. Elizabeth is elderly at this point. Especially for this time. We don't know how old she is, but life expectancy in the first century wasn't nearly as long as it is for us today. So she's elderly. She is past the age of bearing children, and she's not been able to this time to have children. So her days are past. She's relatively in the sunset of her life. Shouldn't she get a little more of the spotlight here? Who is this young upstart to come through the door and take center stage? But notice that in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, she defers completely and gladly and humbly to Mary. All of the attention is on Mary and on the fruit of Mary's womb. Why? Because this is what the Spirit does. This is what the Holy Spirit always does. She is filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit always, gladly and humbly, defers to the Son. So who is is Elizabeth to, you know, try to nudge Mary out of the spotlight? or to go on and on about the fruit of her womb, as it says. The Spirit defers to Christ. The Spirit always gladly defers and points to the Son. So Elizabeth is humble. She says, why is this granted to me? She is amazed at the grace of God, that she has any role whatsoever in this plan of God for the redemption of Israel coming to fulfillment. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And the joy, she lets out this loud shout, a loud cry. It's exuberant joy. This is the effect of the Holy Spirit in the people of God who have been made alive by the Spirit to God in Christ. This is the effect on us. Humility and joy. Why is this granted to us? That our Lord should come to us. Why should he have anything to do with us but judgment? But he comes to us and for us as one of us to save us by his death. Why has this been granted to us? We would be fools to think it's because we are really, really special. We would be fools to think 
that God somehow needs us. That we are so valuable that he just can't do without us. That in order to be happy, he must have us with him forever. No. The effect of the Spirit on those who have been made alive to God in Christ is deep humility. Why has this been granted to us? And secondly, joy. Joy in the people of God. Are we only a little bit joyful? I know there's a lot of reasons that people struggle to know joy in their lives. Many, many, many reasons that we couldn't, in the time we have, begin to exhaust and, and to really unpack. But I think one of the reasons why so many Christians struggle with joy is because they don't think that the gospel is a big deal. It's little joy as though God has just done a little good for them. Or as though the spirit within us has a small witness. And that may be the case, God forbid, that the spirit's witness is small because we suppress it, because we stifle it, because we got too many other things going on to bother with beholding the glory of God in the face of his son through the word. We are all, I think I can say that, we are all so often pathetically lazy when it comes to beholding the glory of God in the face of his son in the word that has been written and preserved for us. And I believe that's why so many Christians lack the joy, the fullness of joy that we are meant to have. But this is the effect of the Spirit of God in his people. As we behold the glory of God in Jesus, humility and joy. When we come to verse 46, now it's Mary's turn. Elizabeth shouts and Mary sings. I'm so impressed with Mary. I just got to say, much more than I have ever been before. I, I haven't poured over this text before as I'm pouring over it now. And, you know, I really, I long for all the daughters of the Lord at Alt's Chapel to become like Mary to follow the model that Mary sets for God's people, not just women, but men as well. But I long for this for our ladies. If, if you become like Mary, you will be counter-culture to the core. I long for you to, like Mary, know the Bible thoroughly, front to back. I long for you to surrender your life up to God unreservedly, to follow and to go on bravely. That's what Mary does. To know the word thoroughly, believe certainly, surrender unreservedly and go on bravely. To say with your words and with your life, behold, Say to the world, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Say to your God, Let it be to me according to your word. Your calling 
on my life. Let it be to me according to your word. Your calling on my son's life, on my daughter's life, let it be to me and let it be to them according to your word. Now the first half of Mary's song praises the Lord for the work that he has done on her behalf. So the first half of her song is very, very personal. In the second part, she speaks of God's work beyond herself into the world. God's work in the world. And so the first part is personal. The second part is very prophetic. I don't think that this word was spontaneous. A lot of people have the idea that the way that it's, you know, Mary, it just says Mary said and then she comes out with it, that it means that it implies that this is spontaneous. So for a lot of commentators then, they've said with skepticism, there is no way she said that. I'm not, I don't think it was spontaneous. It could have been, but I don't think so. This, this is a psalm of praise to God that is very finely crafted. The work of an artist has gone into this that does not remove the work of the Holy Spirit by no means. But this has all of the typical uh, conventional construction of Hebrew poetry with parallel lines and antithetically parallel lines and one stanza building on another and so on. This has been carefully, very carefully constructed. So I think, this is my thinking that, and I'm not saying this dogmatically, but on, the, on her journey down, as she reflected on the word of God that she knew through her life and the word of God that she had just received in previous days, as she did this reflection by the Spirit and composes this song by the Spirit, now that she is before Elizabeth, this, this song comes out in a spirit inspired, spirit-driven rush. Where does Mary's song come from? I'm dealing with some other issues before we really launch into the text. Where does Mary's song come from? It comes from all over the Bible. There are so many allusions here to Old Testament passages of Scripture um, that one commentator said, Mary's celebration of the miraculous conception of the baby in her womb draws from all over the Old Testament, get this, as if it were a palette from which to mix together the various hues of her praise to God. Especially Mary draws from the the song that Hannah composed and sang after the birth of her unexpected son, Samuel, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. There are many elements to what Mary sings that, that parallel that echo Hannah's song. So she's drawing from all over the word. Where does Mary's song come from? It comes from the Bible. I said that she knows the Bible thoroughly. That's very clear from her song. Where else does it come from? We see that in the first two verses of her song. It comes from deep within her soul. Her spirit. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Where does the song come from? It comes from the Bible. Where does the song come from? It comes from her heart. What do the two have to do with each other? They have everything to do with each other. She is not pulling this song out of thin air. It's not just something that she has conjured up from her own experiences and so on. All through her lifetime, 
God has been planting his word in this young soul. The word of promise. He's been planting it in her heart. And just think about what word he planted in her soul about a week earlier. Not the word of promise, but the word of fulfillment. He has planted his word in her heart. And now she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She realizes by the word of God that her salvation and her nation's salvation is forming as she sings within her womb. How can Mary be silent? How can any of the people of God, certain of their salvation, be silent? We must be, how can we not be, a singing people? Now the title of Mary's song, you may see a heading in your Bible, not an inspired heading, but descriptive heading of her song. The title is The Magnificat, and it's been called this for centuries. It comes from the first word of this song as it's translated in Latin, and hence, hence the title. As Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Okay, now let's get into this text. What does she mean? My soul magnifies the Lord. Is she saying that God has grown in his being bigger? That he is in his essence greater? That's not what she's saying. She is saying that God is greater than she has ever known him to be before. What did she know of the Lord two weeks ago, before this time? She knew great things. Again, I have, I have no doubt that her house and her heart were filled with the, the sound of the Psalms as she grew up, with the reverent instruction of the law and the fear of the Lord. I have no doubt about that. But the gospel of God's Son, the gospel concerning her Son, blows everything up. What scripture that she had heard in her lifetime compares with the revelation that has just been spoken over her? And please understand what I mean that, the sense of that. What I mean is that the word that was spoken before, again, was promise. Through Moses, David, the prophets, the Psalms, the writings, the prophets, it was promise. And now what has been spoken over her, this new revelation, is fulfillment. What was grace before? What was mercy to Mary before this? Awesome. Awesome. But now, his grace and his mercy are more than she ever thought. So he is more. In her understanding, in her knowledge, and her heart is enlarged with God. So she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked, she sings, on the humble estate of his servant. Mary is echoing what Elizabeth said earlier, when Elizabeth said, why is this granted to me? 
Mary's echoing the same thing, but in a more poetic way here. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Who am I that my God should come to me? Who am I that he should come for me and my salvation? She is amazed at the grace of God. For now, for behold, she sings at the end of verse 48, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Note, these three little words, I didn't check how many it was in Greek, but these three little words, from now on. Mary realizes that nothing will ever be the same. Nothing will ever be the same. As she has crossed over the threshold into Zachariah's house, Mary and Elizabeth are realizing that they are crossing over, as they speak and sing, over the threshold into a new day, a new era for the people of God from the age of promise to the age of fulfillment. From now on, she says, these words are big. All generations will call me blessed. Nothing will ever be the same. He who is mighty, she says, has done great things for me. And through God's work in her life, in the son that she bore, our God who is mighty, and wisdom, and power, and love has done great things for you and for me. Let us sing of the might of his love, the power of the gospel of his son. God has done great things for us. In the second half of her song, Mary turns from the immediate moment to the ages. She turns from the present and the personal to the prophetic. And she recalls, as you can see over the next several verses, the past. And she is looking forward to a certain fulfillment in the future. Kent Hughes said, Mary saw in the microcosm of her own life how God had dealt and would deal with the world in macrocosm. And she sang to him in praise because of those great reasons. Why does Luke include this? Well, first and most obviously, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But what is the purpose of the Spirit in including this? Luke's not adding this to pretty up the narrative. By the Spirit of God, he is demonstrating to you and to me the effect of God's work in a soul that is certain of the glory of God's truth. This is the effect of God's work in someone who belongs to him and knows it, who is certain of the glory of God's truth. The effect is praise. The effect is singing. And so the Spirit is calling for you and I to respond in similar fashion calling for us to sing. Are you certain of the glory of the truth of God? Are you certain of his majesty and his beauty? Then join with Mary and sing along. 
Why does the church of Jesus sing? Deal with a couple of issues before, again, we, we get into this text, like we did earlier. Why does the church sing? Let me try to answer that question with another question. How can we engage together to convey the greatness of the beauty of our God and his work? How? Say it again. How can we engage together to convey the beauty of our God and his work? This is the answer. With theology set to poetry, set to melody. Or as Paul put it in Ephesians 5, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. We don't just sing to add another element to congregational life. We're not just trying to, you know, break the monotony of the people of God meeting together to frill things up or attract some people who just like music. That's not why we sing. We sing because we share in Christ and His salvation. And we need a way to convey the glory and the beauty of it. And so we sing together. We share songs. We join our hearts. And we join our voices. And we sing what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. We need what is deep and joyful to express, to convey the beauty of our God and the salvation that he has achieved for us through his son Jesus. That's why we sing. What does Mary sing? As she moves from concentrating on God's work in her life personally to what God is doing for all people, and and, and in some cases to people, she sings God's mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Those who fear the Lord will see the strength of God in one way, and those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts will see the strength of God in a different way. God will save the poor in spirit by His mercy. God will scatter the proud according to His judgment. Who are the proud? Those who don't think that they need God. Those who oppose God. Those who don't even regard God as their equal but rather think that God is beneath them. What I mean is, there are a lot of unbelievers that I know that are very kind people, and that by all signs, by their words and their lives, regard people, all people, as their equals. And yet those same people who regard others as their equals think that God is beneath them. They say, how could a good God allow this tragedy? How does he not put a stop to this evil and to this suffering? The implication being, if they don't voice it, I wouldn't do that. And so this God in the Bible, they are saying, is not even worthy of the name. This is the proud who don't 
only regard God as their equal, but in fact more as beneath them. God will scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down, Mary sings, the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. What is Mary doing here? Mary is recalling the work of God in the past. She is recalling what God has done to the kings of Egypt and Canaan and Babylon. That's him, God, bringing down the mighty from their thrones. And he raised up Israel, those of humble estate. But Mary is just not recalling God's work in the past. I I want you to... Remember, Luke wants us to be certain. Luke 1 verse 4, why he writes to Theophilus. He wants the people of God to be certain of the things that they have been taught. So here is this case of Mary. This person who has every worldly reason to not be certain of what God is going to do. Who has an absolute and very deep, unshakable certainty. So, you can see here how certain in fact she is. That she is not only recalling what God has done in the past, she is really looking forward ultimately to what God will do through her son. That he will bring down the mighty from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. That he will fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. Ultimately, what God has done in the past has been a foreshadowing of what he ultimately accomplishes through his son through the son that Mary bears in her womb. The one who is, humanly speaking, still in the embryonic stage. Can I give you something at 10 after 12 that's a little bit technical without your eyes glazing over? I'll try. Okay, something about the tense in which this song is composed at this point. We see it in English, we would say, okay, this is past tense, right? He has brought down, exalted, filled and sent away. That looks like past tense. The the Greek equivalent to that is what we call the aorist tense. And it always refers to completed action. But there is a kind of aorist tense that we call the prophetic aorist. And that is what is being used here. Let me explain. Again, the aorist is always completed action. But as Mary looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment of what she sings, she is talking about things that are not yet reality. That the fulfillment awaits the future. And this is how certain she is in her mind and in her heart. This is her faith. That these things that are still in the future are so sure to be that she can speak of them as though they are already past. This is similar to what Isaiah does in Isaiah 53. When he writes in the past tense about the one who was crushed for us. And he was writing 700 years before Jesus. This is also similar to the Apostle Paul writing in Romans chapter 8. When Paul says that we are glorified And we haven't been glorified. Not really. Not actually. That awaits 
the time when we are with Jesus personally, right? Then in the future, we will be glorified with Christ. That's our hope. So why does Paul write as though it's in the past? He says, we're glorified because it's so sure to be. It is, as we like to say about a lot of things, it's as good as done. It's irreversible. It's unavoidable. It is going to be. That's how deeply certain Mary is about the work of God that he will accomplish through her son, who is still a human embryo. That God will, through her son, bring down the mighty in the ultimate way. He will exalt the humble, fill the hungry, and send the rich away empty. And he would go on to preach, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. He will claim, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Who are you in your own eyes? Who is God in your understanding? And who are you accordingly? doesn't matter how good you have it, materially, spiritually, whatever, or how bad. We all need Mary's Son, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us. Now, Mary closes perfectly. Of course, she does. Her song is inspired by the Spirit. But she says, all of this will be because God is faithful to his word. She sings, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Brian and Clay, I'm not asking you to give me a, a loud response, but You remember, right, what God promised Abraham? I was talking about this with some of our kids this past Wednesday night. What did God promise Abraham? Three, three, three things. The land, descendants, and blessing. So this last Wednesday, one of our kids asked me, Brother Mike, what is the blessing? Okay, we'd already gone over that it is blessing through Abraham and his descendants to all the families of the earth. So he said, Brother Mike, what is the blessing? And before I could give an answer, he said, oh, I know. It's Jesus. And I just looked at him with that look like, are you sure about this? And he said, there's no way it's not Jesus. You better believe it's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Son of glory that God, according to his covenant faithfulness, God, according to his immeasurable love, gave to the world. The blessing is Christ. So back to Mary, who is singing about the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham and his offspring. Elizabeth kept saying it. You're blessed, Mary. Mary herself acknowledges it. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So why do we call Mary especially blessed? Because she was, in a very real sense, the first to hear 
of Jesus. The first to hear of Jesus, not in the promised sense that it happened in the age previous, but the first to hear of Christ in the fulfillment sense. God has been faithful to fulfill his word. Why do we call her blessed? Because she is, again, in one sense, the first to believe in Jesus. Not from the promised side of things in the past, but on the fulfillment side of things in the new day that she marks with the words from now on. She is the first to hear and she is the first to believe. But Jesus himself wants you and me to know that she is not the last to be blessed. We call her uniquely, especially in a way this firstly blessed, but she is not the last. It's recorded in Luke that later on in his ministry, while Jesus is teaching one particular crowd, a woman calls out from the crowd, blessed is the womb that bore you. Yeah, that's what Elizabeth said. But Jesus wants us to know the real significance of Mary's blessing and how that continues to be poured out on each one who follows in her footsteps. He responded, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Mary is blessed to this day not only because she bore the Son of God in her womb, but because she believed with absolute certainty in her heart that God's salvation, according to his word, would be fulfilled in her son, for her personally, and for all the people of God. So this blessedness that is promised to Mary is also extended to you. If you will believe with certainty in your heart in the good news concerning God's Son, Jesus, the blessedness, the blessed state is for you as well. The certain are going to sing about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Who are we that we should be included? Why should our Lord come to us and for us? We're staggered to receive the gift of your promise, your immeasurable love, the unspeakable gift. We're staggered. But, Father, because of the witness of your Holy Spirit within us, we're certain. We're certain that Jesus is for us. And I pray, Father, that in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and in the certainty that you have given, we would sing your praises. I pray that we would not hold back. I pray that we would be deeply humble and our joy would be exuberant like Elizabeth's, like Mary's, who shout and sing your praises. I pray that we would do the same. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.